Hey everyone, this episode went on very long, so I'm splitting it up into two parts. Part one will come out this week, and part two will come out next week. We also had a bunch of technical issues, including a a form of audio distortion that I have never heard before and have no idea how to fix on my audio. Uh, So some of it's going to sound weird, some of it's going to sound a little garbled, but uh, other than that, I think it turned out really well. So enjoy. Hey everyone, welcome to Neighbor Science, the only podcast about political economy and anime. I'm Ryan Salisbury, and today we have two guests, uh, many-time returning guest, Young Neocon. Hi, what's up? And uh, first-time guest, uh, Samuel... Sorry, I f- oh, God, I forgot There's name. so many names, that's fine. It's, uh, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's JMM, I was like, oh no, which one is it? <laughs> uh, M- Miller McDonald, those are the, those are the two, nice alliteration. Um, so since you've never been on here, do you want to tell the listeners a little bit about yourself? Yeah, um, I'm a PhD student. Uh, I'm in a geography department and focusing on kind of energy transition politics, uh, degrowth discourses a little bit that just kind of snuck in more recently. And um, I, I do a lot of writing, um, mostly for uh, current affairs, my favorite. So uh Good publication. Yeah, yeah, I, I really like them, and that's that's about one of the only ones I can read without getting mad. <laughs> that's good. Which is funny because now everybody has like started to make a habit out of like going out of their way to get mad. <laughs> yeah. Like, as soon as they started, you know, as soon as y'all started publishing like anarchist takes and like a like a white like you know from like a couple years ago, I know it's like more sort of it's kind of it felt to me kind of like the. Uh, I don't know. It felt like a the like a better uh, new republic or something. But then, like you know, a couple years ago, like started publishing all these like anarchist and ecological takes and stuff, and that's when everyone started getting mad at it, <laughs> which I always thought was funny. Oh shit! Well, because um... like I don't know, yeah, because people like uh, seemingly uh or fury ecology is bad or something. Exactly, I don't exactly. Know. Ecology and anarchism <laughs> are bad. It's like that's it. <laughs> But, uh, Those yeah. are both liberalism. Well, I hope I didn't. I hope I haven't contributed to that. I've almost. I've mostly written ecological stuff, climate stuff. So, <laughs> well, I mean, my bad. No, I mean, that's good though. <laughs> I mean, I think. I think what I'm saying is that, I, uh, like, uh, like, uh, it's, it's, it's when people publish good takes that people get mad. It's, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, it's, it's, yeah. Marxism, I know, is a is a thing that gets the draws the uh, attention sometimes, as well. But uh, the the handshake meme, and it's on one side, uh, Jacobin posting bad takes, and Current Affairs posting good takes, <laughs> and in the middle, it's people getting mad. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. That's you should make that. That would. Uh, I, I will make that. <laughs> well, it was, it was like, it's like Nate did that um, purposely uh, incendiary thread or something about. Marxism and people got really mad at it. I remember, but it was funny because like their claims, if someone else had said them, I don't think people would have gotten like mad at them, which was like kind of funny to me. But anyway, uh, so anyway, today so, we are talking about uh, degrowth. We have a couple articles, maybe a third uh, if we have time. Uh, the first one that we're going to talk about is referenced in the second one it is a new yorker article by john cassidy who i've never heard of um and it's called can we have prosperity without growth um have either of you heard of this guy 
Uh, I haven't. I don't think so. Okay, so no name guy writing about degrowth, um, and would you believe it? Uh, he doesn't understand it at all. <laughs> Isn't that weird? But <laughs> he doesn't understand degrowth. Is that Eric Idle? No, that's uh, the that's John Cassidy. Is he one of the Monty Python guys? <laughs> no, he's the, he's, the, <laughs> <laughs> he's wealthy, but no, he's uh, he's the guy who wrote the article. He is. Uh, people who thought I just sent a picture of this uh, funny looking dude <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah Eric Idle is uh, talking in this article about how uh, GDP has gone up more than sixfold in the United States and, and now we have to debate whether or not uh, GDP should uh, be negative which is as he says it the uh, degrowth position so like he literally says which uh, the degrowth movement which calls an advanced countries to embrace zero or even negative GDP growth, which I don't know how, how does everyone get this wrong? Well, so there are some, uh, like, uh, I don't know, 10 years ago or something, there was, um, prosperity without growth or something by Timothy Jackson, I think. Uh, okay. So that must be what he read then. Maybe if that's what the, yeah, what's in the title. And he is the, he does call for, think if i recall correctly in the book he does call for negative growth oh yeah here tim jackson yep but in that book university of surrey and that's funny too because this came out of the time when like i guess the 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 mood was different because this book not only was it liked it was like you know he did like the whole ted talk circuit thing and like he 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 got all this like positive press from like bloomberg and all this other stuff so it was kind of weird it was like this was 10 years ago 11 years ago and when it came out, he got praise from like all these like main liberal pubs. He also got praise from like Le Monde. He got it from Anthony Giddens, Yanis Varoufakis, Chomsky, Herman Daly. Uh, so it's kind of funny how things have changed. And then, and that was during the economic crisis too. So maybe that had something to do with it. And then uh, Herman Daly. Herman Daly is another one. He's the big ecological economist, like the contemporary one. See, I thought he was a solid, uh, steady state economist. <clears throat> he is. He is not a degrowth guy. He, okay, he is a steady state. I think both of them would call themselves steady state, actually. But the term degrowth didn't exist in French circles. But is it only decroissance? Yeah, yeah. So, but they do talk about the prospect of um, sustaining prosperity, or like what they call prosperity, in the context of a negatively growing economy drinking economy so um through like distributional and other things and then someone what's his name the sort of a classic doyen of ecological economics um what's his name uh uh georgescu rogan he also oh yeah georgescu rogan yeah yeah but he georgescu rogan had some like he was kind of like a an economic pessimist in some ways because he basically thought that like um that like while ecologically speaking there did need to be some shrinkage that the economy had like a natural, not natural, but intrinsic thrust towards like accumulation. So that was sort of unstoppable. So we were kind of screwed. And he also thought, talked about how during shrinking economic stuff, like the distributional issues lead to social conflict. So it's kind of a, there's an older, there is an older generation type of like the club of Rome type people who both do cause call for, some degree of shrinking, but also recognize like the weird contradictions that entails. I don't know. It's a it's an it's an older type of position, I think. Uh, 
perhaps because they're still yeah. in speaking economism. Of, I don't know. Anyway, um, speaking of <laughs> accumulation and, and contradictions, um, apparently Tim Jackson calls for shifting economies from mass market production to lo- local services such as nursing, teaching, and handicrafts, which the first two, I mean, teaching, do we have a lot of room to expand teaching? It seems like we have full public schooling like almost everywhere. So I don't know how much more of the economy could be from that. Well, we don't have like, uh, but we, I think the claim goes that like there's, you know, only 60% like labor force participation. So, you know, like 20% of those people could be involved in services like medicine and education. If we, whatever, I guess we could have like class sizes of like five students. That would be cool. And a lot more, (laughs) and a lot more universities and stuff like that. And then, you know, Ivan, I think Ivan Illich, I forget how you pronounce his name, but he liked the, uh, the, like he, he really liked the barefoot doctor program from, um, Maoist China, so like uh, he, he proposed that as like a sort of he doesn't really an anarchist, but he was something like that, and uh, he uh, he proposed like that that kind of idea has been taken up by a lot of these people who say like yeah we'll just train everybody to install solar panels and be nurses basically so <laughs> and I'm gonna yeah one of the other things they mentioned here is handicrafts which like one of my comments here was there's a really specific reason we stopped doing handicrafts which is because it can't be managed by bureaucrats, which is like what is what accumulation necessitates. Yeah. And like, uh, yeah. And, uh, and it's artisanal and it's, uh, yeah, it's slower and not, it's much harder to scale up. And I'll be honest with you. There was a time when I used to think like these people. So I could, uh, like when I was younger, I, I was, Oh yeah, for sure. Same. Yeah. <laughs> when I was like 18, I'd be like, Oh yeah, we're all just going to become artists and nurses and, Whatever, but uh, I, I don't. I don't have. Now I'm a genius who thinks we're all going to become hunter gatherers. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be great. Uh, but, uh, anyway, I don't know. I think we could all do handicrafts. That that works for me. I don't want to do handicrafts. <laughs> you can teach. That's you can you can get paid for your giant Twitter threads. <laughs> I wish. Yeah. <laughs> Samuel, do you know anything about nursing, or are you going to be a teacher as well? I'm, I'm gonna. Oh no, I'll be hunting, man. Be <laughs> okay, <out>. from Michigan. <laughs> so we just need uh, a nurse. We got hunter, teacher, and handicraft person. <laughs> well, I guess wait, my, well, my partner. What, what handicrafts? Uh, you know, pickling, um, <laughs> playing video games, probably some other stuff. But that's not important right now. <laughs> We're talking about a utopia. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> I'm I'm gonna learn woodworking. Soon. You, got, you got all that wood in the rack. That's, that's gonna. Well, I'm not gonna there. woodwork with firewood. That would be crazy. But you know. <laughs> So yeah, I was I was just saying um, they're talking about these two Nobel Prize winning economists that figured out that uh, GDP doesn't necessarily improve human well being, and they they go through the uh, typical bad um, since 1990 the number of people living on less than a dollar ninety a day fell from nearly two billion to around seven hundred million thing, and I was just asking if if you or Samuel wanted to take that 
on at all, or should we just go over it because we we already know that it's really dumb? So John Cassidy starts the article by talking about John Maynard Ken's and speculated that technological progress will raise living standards as much as eightfold, uh, which I would say didn't really happen. I don't think what, so. What, well, actually, we have so iPhones now, but <laughs> there's a there's a actually so this is interesting. So there's a book. Um, it's called. It's like. There's a book of economists, uh, mainstream economists, talking about. So Keynes wrote this, you know, this very famous. For people who don't know, wrote this really famous essay, "Economic Possibilities of Our Grandchildren," and uh, it's one of these things where it's like funny because like he in that essay and in his other supplemental writings on leisure, and then like Bertrand Russell was another example of people who are like somehow it's in rare instances like more radical than other like leftists. Because their end goal for society was literally just everybody having being able to do leisure activities all the time, and they only saw the economy as a means to the end for that. Um, just like where everybody yeah, that sounds good. Yeah, so it's funny because the Keynes literally is like he thought the point of life was leisure, not even consumption. He thought the economy was only relevant as a means to that end, and he thought employment was only relevant as a means to that end because like work sucks. So, excuse me. Uh, so the only like. Uh, so he, uh, unlike other people, you know, everyone thinks of Keynes as this uh, digging holes to save the economy guy, smashing windows to save the economy guy. But he actually explicitly said he does not think that, like, work should serve no purpose. He, he says, because everybody hates it, it should only be to produce stuff so that people can do whatever they want on their own. That was his view. And in Economic Possibilities for our Grandchildren, he's like, look, if the same rate of capital accumulation and compound interest persists over the next uh, arc of the whatever – Within you know a hundred years, we could all work for two hours a day, and so on and so on. So what's interesting is that, quantitatively speaking, his guesses for capital accumulation, labor productivity output, um, and so on were actually spot on. He got those almost exactly correct, which is really funny. But he got everything else wrong. <laughs> so he got all the qualitative predictions wrong. So he, you know. We didn't shed labor hours. In fact, for many people in the world, labor hours went up. This is, you know, Julie, Juliet Shore's point. Um, and though, and all the, and then we didn't spread work more evenly. Instead, we just, you know, first mass introduced people into the labor market, and then, you know, let kick them out. So, you know, from like 1940 to like 1970, I think it is. Like you see labor market participation like shoot up, and then ever since then it's been falling steadily back down to like 60 percent or something, 50, 60 percent, and. Uh, Plus it, it, and do you think that's just because he doesn't understand the point of the economy, which is to create a class system? Keynes, yes, Keynes did not have a class perspective. He he thought, you know, he was still of this old mindset where, well, first of all, he believed in the euthanasia of the rentier, as he says, uh, but which didn't occur. Um, and he was of this sort of British aristocratic mindset that's sort of like, you know, I guess like. Yes, of course, the aristocrats and bourgeois look after their own needs, but, you know, through good education and culture, like, they can be made to see the uh, sort of uh, truth of the economy and be made to convince to, like, have this more peaceful sort of – it was very much a corporatist and uh, elitist mindset in that sense, um, which – I think we should teach him to code, the aristocrats. <laughs> but, uh, no, don't do that. <laughs> they already know it's, it's been disastrous but uh so actually this, this is funny because i'll get to this later because uh as far as critiques of degrowth go that are actually legitimate 
the one that a lot of it seems to function as sort of a bunch of these sort of naive idealists trying to convince. So like Timothy Jackson, who we will mention, is, uh, he wrote Property Without Growth and was praised by all the main liberal press or whatever. And, you know, people like, I mean, Greta Thunberg is just a kid, so whatever. But these <laughs> they do they do have this sort of mentality where it's like, oh, like with the good ideas, we'll convince the elites to stop destroying the earth. Um, Keynes thought that way, but just sort of nothing else happened with it. Uh, people always like to bring it up as a punching bag whenever they like to talk about these things. But for some reason, even though like in this, if you uh, like in contemporary appraisals of it, it's basically like, yeah, he got the quantitative stuff pretty correct. What he didn't get was like, uh, well, economists chalk it up to labor market preferences and technological change or whatever. But, you know, uh, but, uh, you know, that kind of thing. And yeah, anyway, uh, Something that I, I feel like something that's that's interesting to me that's that's coming out of uh, what we're talking about with Keynes is is the uh, you know for him what progress means is is leisure time and yeah. mm-hmm. uh, I feel like what what that's you know he's he's basically describing the original affluent society you know like like the the idea that this the the ultimate good is having freedom from labor to to just do what you want to do and and. To me, that that gets to this question of, well, then what's the point of of an an economy? What's the point of having an industrial economy when you can achieve that in a in a kind of you know uh, going back to hunter gatherers? Uh, if that's if that's the only thing that that this you know super complex society is is offering something that you can achieve on a much in a, in a much simpler society and economy, what's the point of it? And um, to me, that's a really interesting question of. If we're going to be doing these Faustian, you know, kind of bargains with with having a, a a really complex, stratified economy, what are we getting out of it that's better than than what humans have had for ninety seven percent of our history or whatever? Um, that's something that's been sticking in my craw a lot lately. Is you know, uh, people, especially when they want to criticize anarchism, they're like, "How how is an anarchist society going to have a train system?" Like, oh, so you can get to your job? Is that what you're talking about? Like. <laughs> What do we need that for? <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's, it's, it's funny. I mean, because, you know, first of all, like when Sons wrote that essay, right, he like did it in part, uh, I guess, because this sort of – well, okay, first of all, because for Americans, it's always about consumption, not even leisure, which is like the funny thing, right? So mm-hmm. old European, continental Europe, their big obsession was laboring for all, like the nobility of the laborer. For Keynes and his aristocratic mindset, it was about leisure. And then for America, it's about like consumption and ownership. But uh, and then Sons comes out, and that essay has been the thorn. Everybody has like tried to every every like decade, someone tries to come out and like disprove that article, which I think is really funny. But um, I think if you could convince Keynes of the uh, empirics of the original Alpha Society, you probably would be okay with that idea. You know, primitive kids, but uh. But uh, I think the problem is that you probably couldn't convince him of the empirics of that because there's so many people who are just, are just absolutely convinced that the idea that like you could, that nomadic foragers could have lived a relatively abundant you know lifestyle or still do I mean uh, in many places like uh, with free time and leisure and enough food for everyone to eat and whatever the idea that that's true to many people is not only like they can't they, it's like they find it offensive almost I've noticed in people's reactions to it we're it's, it's we're weird. all hobbesian now 
Yeah. <laughs> but with, see, if, if this is, that's another one of these things, too. Uh, it's a uh, if I if I keep doing this, I'm gonna get canceled because I'm gonna che- keep trying to uh, defend the honor of all these people who are widely hated. But uh, Hobbs Hobbs is another misunderstood person. I mean, that's for another t- podcast. Uh, but uh, anyway, um, yeah, definitely. no, no, that's it. Disabuse me. Oh no, oh no, no. <laughs> of my oh, no, this would, that would take, that would be that would be like a three-hour lecture. That's not. It's like uh, it's just. Uh, let me put it this way, Hobbs. We'll get you back on for that one, Samuel. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll sit there quietly. <laughs> <laughs> Hobbes wrote like you know the Leviathan, right? And um, he, in his original thing, he says basically, if you have science, commerce, cooperation, so on and so on, then you have a sovereign, right? So this idea, like the point, so the point is, is that with Hobbes, like if that's the case, then that means that. So okay, so sorry, just quick, uh, that now that I have this, okay. So he lists, he lists, he lists like a hundred things. Done? He lists, he lists a hundred things that you have that you, you have. You need to have a sovereign to have, right? So then the flip side of that is, is that if a society has those things, then it has a sovereign, right? So then the point is, is that, uh, like, he, uh, like, if, if literally if people, like, use language and cooperate with each other and, like, have shared metrics of time and science, then by his definition, they have a sovereign. And if neighbors are trying to kill each other, then they don't. So the flip side of that is like not this he doesn't like it's not that we need to like have a compact with the sovereign to establish our society it's that any society that already is established has such a compact even if they don't realize it so it's a uh, kind of the flip of it and then in his second edition of the leviathan or third or whatever edition he added in the like comments about hunter gatherers later because he was trying to like I, I forget the specific context but he was like he didn't actually originally list them as people who didn't have one he did that later i think for a specific rhetorical political reason that uh which is like more complex but basically it was almost like a, an in-joke because he goes and he directly contradicts it in the next paragraph but anyway so that's my side note about hobbes but uh hobbes is actually uh is is, is an anarchist is the take all no i'm just kidding but uh <laughs> but uh, anyway so yeah sorry okay Are you, please edit out my hobbes lecture <laughs> I'll I'll put it as bonus audio or something. Um, so yeah, we'll gloss over the Banerjee and Duflo thing. Um, I think most people listening understand that GDP doesn't necessarily mean a rise in human well-being. It's, it's only economists that were confused about that. Well, let's wait. Actually, see, I, I see. I have almost the opposite viewpoint. I think everybody I talk to does think it's like a real thing, whereas. Well, first of all, the thing you have to understand about like, academic economists is that they more or less, I mean, you could you could portray it unflatteringly if you like, but the way they talk to each other and the way they talk to the public is very different. So mm-hmm. when I go to like um, ASSA conferences, you know, the American Social Science Association, which is the economics conference, um, like, and I go to their paper sessions and their keynote sessions, they, they say stuff that like, you know, they're all, it's all about market inefficiencies and it's all about... Um, the insufficiency of metrics, and it's all about the failure to predict, and it's all about problems with the theory, and it's all about the fragility of the of political economy, and it's all about that stuff. And then their public facing statements would be like, "Oh yeah, free trade." You know, it's like very fun. It's just like they, <laughs> the, the the two sort of directly contradict each other in fun, funny ways. And Danny Roderick explains it by saying that like when he talks to economists about this, like why do they talk so differently in their classes and their papers than they do to the public? And the usual justification given is that there's a natural tendency of people 
to try to regulate away like trade and the market so that if they come out and endorse like protectionist and social democratic policies, the policy will go too far in the other direction. So they, they endorse the simplistic version of trade and then so it'll end up somewhere in the middle, which is, I mean, it's a, it's a, it's starting from a false set of premises, but it's actually a kind of valid, if you're, if you're like an opportunistic political actor, that's actually a valid yeah. reasoning if you accept the premises, but it's funny. And, but, uh, and Phil Murawski plays, uh, explains it more unflatteringly, but, uh, anyway, so in my experience, it's actually economists who do understand. I mean, in our last, uh, podcast, right. And in the, what was the other one? The citations needed one, right. Mm-hmm. Right. They talk about how um, in his original testimony to the House about uh, GNP, um, that they basically said Kuznets. Yeah. In Kuznets original testimony oh, yeah. to the House, he basically said, like, I'm inventing this metric, you know, or we're inventing this metric at the MBER or whatever for purposes of like the war, more or less, and to take an accounting of stuff. But you can't use this as a metric it doesn't even capture all of the economy let alone all of life and uh it just got reified very quickly for many reasons uh spread through the world like wildfire and um especially in light of you know the brenton woods conference and the establishment of that system um and uh you know it's like what do they say about like when a, a metric becomes a target it ceases to function as a metric right so that right. happened with GNP and GDP very quickly, um, and so, but economists like do like in uh, economics, academic economics papers, um, GDP as like an operational instrumental construct is usually used like. I mean, obviously they use it, but they they usually use it in a more um, conservative fashion. I mean, there are some people like in growth economics who just like will write nonsense but uh there are others who are they'll just still like, use like gdp deflators and yeah and yeah stuff like that yeah, they'll write, they'll, yeah but like it's pretty meaningless there are like a lot of because a lot and but more commonly now like if you pick up like uh the american economic review or something and you go through it they they, they prefer things like disaggregated measures of you know different like consumption bundles and and other things and behavioral choices and frame choices and like uh, nominal aggregates and stuff over these sort of uh, arbitrary constructs because they are arbitrary constructs, right? I mean, like core GDP or something, or core inflation rather, like for example, which people talk about, it just existed as a political ploy that that just subtracts oil and food prices from GDP and then calculates inflation using like that. So I think economists do get that it's kind of like, I mean, in my experience, they like they not only do they get it, they like live it. But in their public facing stuff, they talk about it as though it's this like holy grail that it's like this beautiful, true metric. But in their own writings on the subject, they treat it like what it is, which is that it's like an artifactual metric that aggregates things in an incredibly selective assumption dependent way that has, you know, in some sense, it's only ever supposed to index phenomenon behind it. It's not a phenomenon that can be nim- manipulated in and of itself. Policymakers don't think that way because they need a metric to manipulate. But like, the fact is, is that like, I don't know. It's like when someone says, uh, 
like looks at walkability metrics for a city and they say like we need to increase walkability or something right that i think that's like noble in its aspiration but what's weird about that is that since walkability is itself just like an aggregated metric out of like other like data points it's it's kind of like weird to speak about it's like manipulation right because it's not actually a independent thing it's extracted from other causal factors so mm-hmm. most people i talk to outside of that economy economics don't seem to get that about gdp they think like policymakers or an economist public facing things that gdp is like a operational metric that you can instrumentally change like uh, like affect it but you know that doesn't really make sense right because you know what does it mean to increase gdp what like it means that the volume of uh transactions uh of goods and services in money uh subject to a deflator for inflation uh i mean a whole bunch of other things quality inflation uh substitution and income effects da 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 uh uh has like increased year on year but like that doesn't really mean anything i mean that's where the cane stuff comes back in if we go if you know the government goes out and smashes everybody's windows and then <laughs> makes it and then it fixes everybody's windows gdp goes up and not just nominal gdp like real gdp i mean so it's just because now there's a uh, window smashing and fixing industry that didn't exist before so it's like <laughs> the government would never do that though because that's that's our job yeah right that's <laughs> anarchist keynesians uh, gorilla <laughs> Guerrilla anarcho Keynesian smashing windows to save the economy. But, uh, <laughs> but, uh, it's, uh, so yeah, a lot of people don't really get this. Like, and when they talk about GDP in a socialist context, it's always very funny to me that, like, the same people who will dismiss, like, I don't know, uh, who will dismiss color revolutions. <laughs> oh, yeah, they'll dismiss anything. They'll dismiss, like, they'll dismiss, like, a scientific paper on the premise that it's, like, a State Department conspiracy. <laughs> we'll then talk about like GDP in socialist countries, but that that doesn't make sense. I mean, GD, the GDP estimations and GNP estimations for socialist countries were always um, sort of, even when they released them themselves, they were always uh, inferred. Yeah, they were like analogical rather than than real. That's why when you look at GDP charts of like the transition from social social state socialism to uh, capitalism. Uh, a lot, some of that like cratering effect was just that they started counting the economy differently. So like, like if you go from not having markets and uh, measuring everything in inputs and outputs and widgets, except for on global markets, some wage markets and consumer goods, which they did have some monetary and market penetration for, but that's not, I don't want to go too hard into that. But, um, but like for their own internal production economy, if you go from measuring it as widgets and inputs and outputs and whatever and using firm level, like they they used nominal pricings and accountings and, and kernel credits to manage the economy, but it was basically just a bookkeeping exercise. If you go from that to an actual market economy and people aren't used used to markets and don't really want to trade goods and services of the but the money is just wasn't money before, but it's just a unit of account and now it's real money. You're gonna even if even if GDP even if like actual like output and living standards went up, you'd still probably see a fall in GDP. So that's like one of the fun. Not that not that there there was absolutely an economic crisis following the transition, but uh, part of the the magnitude of the cratering of GDP and then its sharp rise afterward is because of the change in the standards. And so 
people don't really get this, that talking about GDP in a state socialist con con uh, context is already pushing it because you can talk about it analogically as outputs and inputs and, and, sit and stuff on the global market. And the other thing you can do is you can say you can, you can match a, a socialist consumption bundle to a capitalist one or something, and you can match uh, prices to their export price and then sort of reason backward. But again, it doesn't really – at the end of the day, that's severely limited as an exercise because if it was actually fully traded on the market, it would probably have a different price. But um, like – that but like all right um, wait, wait, so, uh, so we, we got to keep going with this article oh no no, no, but this, no, no this is because this is a, no this is part of like, this is i think part of the, okay. this is this is really actually part of the later part because like people don't understand this like gdp doesn't really even work in a state socialist concept, uh, context in a non-state socialist context gdp is absolutely meaningless even beyond that so that's the point i want to get to which is that later because the affection socialists have for gdp and their reaction to degrowth stems in large part because of this like misunderstanding refusal to understand this about GDP. That's why I wanted to say that because just like that's the point about degrowth, not that we want to shrink people's living standards. That's why I was getting that out of the way because just like socialist GDP does not make sense as a concept. It is a market metric of subject to a deflator. It's a, you know what I mean? So anyway, I think yeah, if it, if it means anything, it's the amount like it's basically the number of transactions that there are. So it, all it measures is like how much of human activity is encompassed by, by the market uh like monetary transactions yeah and then subject to the deflator which i know it makes it even more meaningless but they say it makes yeah. it more real which uh, and that's we don't want that if we if we have socialism we don't want market transactions exactly that would be bad <laughs> so and money and whatever that's the only reason i want to yeah. bring that up that is because because it'll have to come up eventually later when that's all that's why i did that little uh, rant but gotcha. anyway. uh yeah um yeah so once again, they they talk about the World Bank extreme poverty definition, which, as I think most people know by now, it only measures extreme poverty, which is a completely arbitrary um, fence and doesn't has not kept up with inflation. And if you measure with a different metric, more people are poor now than there were before. Um, and then they talk about um, – and, and, and because some of the apparent poverty reduction is, again, people being – like things that they got before for free from their friends are now being traded right. on the market. So it looks like the yeah. incomes are rising and their GDP is rising, but their living standards actually go down. <laughs> yes. In like China, for example, that's like almost all of the like PRC's poverty reduction. But um, They have a parenthetical uh, – in a few sentences that, that I really like, which is Donald Trump has not, as he promised, boosted the overall GDP f uh, growth four or five percent. He didn't even build the freaking wall either. Like, what a <laughs> what a joker! What a clown! <laughs> <laughs> um, they mention uh, secular stagnation, uh, which is uh, a, a long term a long term decline in the fundamental like quote unquote real factors which result in growth and prosperity. So like, you know, uh, they always, you know, they always list the exhaustion of low hanging fruit, uh, technological saturation, uh, switching to a services based society, rising labor costs, uh, transaction <laughs> costs. Uh, yeah. They mentioned that a couple times as a yeah. service thing. People are spending more money on services, which by which I think they mean, People are being forced to pay rents for things instead of owning stuff. 
and then uh, yeah, and the other ones they list is what inequality and aging. Those are all the big. Those are all the big. Those are all the big, quote unquote, causes of secular stagnation. Although, as this article points out, like the the other people above it, the people they call slothers, point out they say, look, uh, it actually makes sense that a rich economy's growth will slow down because of just like you know, Marx would call it unproductive expenditures uh, that have to just simply like whatever. And then when you don't have people just like working 80 hours a week and then buying durable consumer goods all the time, like you're, you're not going to get growth anymore. Right. So, <laughs> yeah. Like, people don't understand this. If we wanted to actually raise GDP growth and all this stuff, we like could, <laughs> it wouldn't be that hard. We would just need to like put like, like a flat, toll tax on every single person in the country uh, payable only in gold and then force everybody into the labor market and then we'd have real high growth. I mean, it's just like, (laughs) (laughs) but they say that, uh, you know, according to Volrath and was it solo, I think also said this and uh, Lawrence Summers uh, that, that slow growth actually means that we're doing great. Yeah. And I think, I mean, on its own terms, I think if you're a, if you if you believe the GDP is at the economy or whatever, if you believe in there, whatever, that makes sense, right? It's like a, it's a valid thing, which is, yeah. Anyway, it's internally consistent, it's, but yeah, it is. It's it doesn't valid really fit production. reality. <laughs> but yeah. Anyway. Um, and so for the second half, they talk about like green growth. Um, which includes uh, European governments, the World Bank, the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, OECD. Um, and they mention a, a 2018 report by the Global Commission on, Econ- on the Economy and Climate, which uh, I looked them up, and it's like mostly a collection of uh, like states and corporations that are funding that commission. Um, and so... Uh, they say uh, we can enjoy perpetual growth and prosperity while also reducing carbon emissions and our consumption of natural resources. Um, and the the commission said we are on the cusp of a new economic era, one where growth is driven by the interaction between rapid technological innovation, sustainable infrastructure investment, and increased resource productivity. We can have growth that is strong, sustainable, balanced, and inclusive. So th- <laughs> this is like the techno... Um, what word am I thinking of? Like the, the Eco, bright green eco modernist fourth industrial revolution. Yes. Yes. This is mm-hmm. stuff. Um, this is stuff where when I, this kind of stuff is when I start to put on my tinfoil hat because like the fourth, <laughs> the fourth industrial revolution, people are literally like, they're like, they're a diffuse network or whatever. And the green growth people, the eco modernist people and the neoliberal thought collective, they like, they're, they're the most, it's, it's, it, it literally just puts me in a very conspiratorial mode, even though it's very clearly just like a decentralized, network but it's just like uh yeah I'll, we, I, that deserves its own thing i want to write an article on it but i'm not a journalist <laughs> i didn't i didn't write down all of the like funders of that group that i saw but um i definitely remember google as being like a top funder well they fund everything um and then like the european union and and shit like that yeah i'm sure sferiga reichsbank was in there as well <laughs> um they later they mention uh, Kate Raworth who wrote Donut Economics. Have you read that book? I haven't. Either of you? No, not yet. Got to do it. Wait. Also, just side thing. They said the the uh, in this uh, discussion of the challenge, they say 
their judgments reflected right before the donor economics thing. The judges reflected a belief in what's sometimes termed absolute decoupling, a project in which GDP can grow while carbon emissions decline. Uh, conjectured that by 2050, absolute decoupling may appear to have been a relatively easy challenge, as renewables become significantly cheaper than fossil fuels. They endure scientific research into green technology and hefty taxes on fossil fuels, but oppose the idea of stopping economic growth. From an environmental perspective, they write, it would be counterproductive. Recessions have slowed and in some cases derailed efforts to adopt cleaner modes of production. That's, I mean, that's, that's, that's if, it's, if not like a lie, it's very close to one. Yeah, because then a couple of paragraphs later, they talk about how the Great Recession reduced carbon emissions. Yeah. <laughs> like... <laughs> it's seven the, seven sentences later i believe i think i counted the out. thing that i thought of when when they uh -huh. mentioned that was like okay so that means renewables investment is probably just oil companies using their excess money that they get in economic prosperity times to i don't know secure their future or something i i don't know oh wait. but yeah that's a good point about it it literally, yeah, like, it's like it's the being untrue. <laughs> it's like the next next one paragraph after it says the positive rise of emissions <laughs> may have well been the temporary product of a depressed economy, the Great Recession in its aftermath, and the shift <laughs> called to natural gas, which can't be repeated. <laughs> also, also that that coal and natural gas can't be repeated. Where did that shift happen? Coal is is rapidly still being used and growing. Like, yeah, I, I looked I, at I just, stats for the U.S. the other day, and we're still using, we're still producing more coal today than we did in the '70s. I think, uh, I think, but uh, the, I think, by absolute number, but by relative, the electricity industry is rapidly moving into natural gas. But like, the funny thing about that is, is that like, uh, I try to, I try to explain this to people. Like, I had this conversation last night actually at the at the bar, and someone was talking about. Someone is literally praising natural gas and someone else is praising nuclear. And I was talking to both of them. I was like, look, whatever else you might believe, the problem with what you're t they're talking about is that that only applies to like basically the electricity industry. It's only one – in theory, we could decarbonize the electricity sector, sure. I mean like that's going to be like 20 percent of what we need to get rid of though, even if that went to a zero emissions thing. which is Yeah, like, like cargo ships still run on pulverized yeah. coal. And you still need – uh, fossil fuels for other type for industrial agriculture. It's just like, anyway, yeah. Yeah, I was talking to someone about that yesterday. I think maybe it was the day before, but um, you know, they were talking about uh, renewable, like re renewable electricity, and I was just like, "Can you show me a cargo ship, a uh, cargo ship that runs on batteries?" Well, they and they 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 linked an article about a uh, like a catamaran that circumnavigated the globe. <laughs> that was solar powered, and I was like, "Well, that's cool. Is it? Can it carry anything?" <laughs> wait, wait, so we're ship we're shipping nineteenth uh, century aristocrats, maybe, but I don't know. If <laughs> yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The nineteenth century aristocrat industry isn't doing so well since quarantine started, though. We're, we're disrupting the nineteenth century aristocrat industry. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you can get a, a virtual appointment with a nineteenth century aristocrat now. <laughs> All right, so yeah, Donut Economics uh, mentions um, that there's a pattern of GDP increasing, uh, causing emissions to go down. So, like, I think the I think the hypothesis is like 
after a certain point of GDP growth, uh, you know, people's needs are satisfied or whatever, and then like emissions start going down, or it, or it's um, we stop relying on like uh, low quality electricity and start using renewables. There's, um, a, there's a lot of formulations of it. There's even one that's like once you get to a certain once when you're poor, you can't have idealistic dreams, but once you get rich, you can have the luxury of being an environmentalist. That's literally like <laughs> that's called the post materialism hypothesis. It's literally a, a thing that people believe. It's like that's one formulation. The other one is that like uh, since it's so cheap to produce more at whatever, once you get to a certain level of richness, like uh, not only are you like satiated as you're saying, but also that like you can now afford to invest in cleaner stuff. I mean, so again, if not a lie, very close to it. <laughs> and all that's great because you know, uh, ecosystem collapse is like a national problem that's just simultaneously happening in every country. So if we solve it in the U.S., then we're good. <laughs> They talk let's, very quickly. Let's see what else they go through. They talk about, oh yeah, GDP you need for all. As long as it's rising, all groups in society can see their living standards rise. They say that uh, GDP growth is need to avoid conflict. They mention the lie of absolute decoupling. They uh, they uh, and then they talk very briefly about degrowth and they just totally misrepresent it. I mean, they say in a degrowth scenario, GDP per person was gradually reduced by fifty percent over thirty years. But we're yeah, caring. that reminds me in this article about degrowth, which is about how we should stop using GDP. That the author uses GDP twenty two times. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then they talk about Collis and others calling for uh, UBI. Uh, they talk about the Green New Deal. Uh, they they vaguely gloss over the fact that Green New Deal is not a degrowth position. Then they uh, uh, then they. Say so, there's another challenge for growth skeptics. How do they reduce poverty? They mentioned China and India, of course. Uh, Let's actually uh, talk about the Green New Deal for a little bit because it's not. And I just control F the other article. It's not in there. Um, so so it, it seems very popular among uh, socialists these days. Uh, do either of you want to talk about why the Green New Deal is maybe not the best thing to do? Yeah. Um... I wrote a thing for the New Republic that was about um, basically a Green New Deal has to be very different from a New Deal. Uh, it, it, you know, if we want to call it that, fine. But what you know, what the New Deal did was dramatically expanded the mechanization of everything and the and the carbonization of everything, and you know the kind of distribution, wealth redistribution that that happened uh, was fueled by this sort of expansion of, of uh, you know, the carbon economy. And so the Green New Deal has to do the opposite of that. It has to do something that's, that's uh, you know, very much contrary to what the New Deal did and, and accomplished. And uh, if they're just using it as a, like, here's a popular, you know, program that's big and, and can inspire people to, to, to get on board, that's great. But I think a lot of the, the policies uh, that are being promoted are um, not taking seriously. I think the the idea that this can't just replicate the the massive, you know, expansion that occurred with the New Deal, um, which is probably why it's not part of the degrowth uh, agenda. 
And uh, yeah, further, it's like uh, again, this is where my tinfoil hat kind of stuff comes back. Is that like uh, the Green New Deal advocates and their policy proposals? Like, not, they sound very suspiciously similar to the green capitalist and fourth industrial revolution proposals. They're all like, we can automate and electrify our way into sustainability, and it's just like, right? They don't, yeah. they don't like, they. they yeah, it's weird. I mean, and the other big metaphor everybody uses like World War II mobilization, and it's like New Deal and World War II are the worst metaphors for how to fix the climate. As, as, as you're saying, like, like you know, like the motivational effect yeah. might be good, but like war and the New Deal were, yeah, industrial hellholes. It's just like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, totally. Since there's no popular policies uh, that are anything like what we want to do, we could also do the opposite of a really unpopular policy. So we'll have a degrowth policy and we'll call it the Great Leap Backward. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's going to be the next No Smith column about degrowth. <laughs> well, I should, I should start a website so that if he does that, um, I can cash in on it. <laughs> so with, with, with these uh, articles, these people, like, since they cite these degrowth articles, you know, they cite Black Ops Mill, they cite Collis, they cite Jackson, they cite whatever. What I don't get is, like, do you think they just don't actually read them and they just quote mine them? No, they don't. Right? No way. Yeah. No fucking way. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I think that that's the whole pundit industry is is setting up straw men and knocking them down. Is that That's where they get their entire appearance of being the, the you know, the rational, serious adults is – by creating these complete, you know, caricatures of of their opposition that they position as, you know, look at these unreasonable hippies who want to shrink the economy, and you know, I'm this I'm this overeducated walk who, you know, has has the has the more rational uh, response to these problems. I think it's completely straw men, and I don't think they need to read them to to build those straw men. I think they can, you know, cherry pick some some nice little. Uh, nice little quotes that that you know, like Iglesias did it did it too recently. With the, yeah, they really don't have any quotes at all, do they? Yeah, with the well, like defund the police stuff. You know, they, they he he can tweet like, look at defund the police. Isn't that isn't that completely irrational and and extremist? And you know, I'm a much more reasonable uh, wonk who who thinks we should just have a, a billion people in the country instead. <laughs> and, but, but like they don't, it's just, it's all straw men. It's just, that's the whole, the whole grift of, of punditry. Yeah. Speaking of straw men, here's uh, the part that made me the most mad in this article. I completely forgot about it, uh, which is there's another challenge for growth skeptics. How would they reduce global yeah. poverty? China and India lifted millions out of extreme deprivation by integrating their countries into the global capitalist economy. Um, they they do the uh, the sweatshops are good thing. So they say the process involved mass rural to urban migration, the proliferation of sweatshops, and environmental degradation. But the eventual result was higher incomes. Um, and, and then they go on to say, uh, if major industrialized economies were to cut back on their consumption and reorganize along more communal lines... Who would buy all the components and gadgets and clothes that developing countries like Bangladesh, Indonesia, and Vietnam <laughs> produce? Uh, so, yeah, I mean, that's just like, that's obscene, right? They're literally like glossing over like a process of like a billion people being proletarianized and like, 
like you can probably see how many comments I have here. I was so fucking I know. mad at this. Well, you, <laughs> there's one I particularly like where you said like, "Is this guy have it as like is his does he have an empty Are you head fucked in the head? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but like, yeah. So there's so much going on there. Love. Yeah, one thing I said was uh, anyone who's lifted out of extreme deprivation were put there in the first place by the same entity that supposedly lifted them out. It's like giving credit to Europeans for abolishing slavery or <laughs> um, my favorite metaphor for it. Uh, it's like getting mad that the women you uh, let free from being locked in your basement didn't thank you for letting them go. And sometimes that's literally true in the, in the case of the sweatshop production. So. Yeah. yeah. And then also, like, uh, with India and China, uh, so much of what they're called, like, poverty reduction stuff is not just the migration, although that's also a huge part. It's proletarianization, migration, urbanization. Those are, like, the three big ones. But it's also, like, like just um, a selection effect and compositional effect for the sole reason that, like, the cities grow faster than the rural areas. So it's, like, if you have, like, you know, like, uh, just for like very many, that's like various reasons. I mean, uh, so like, I, I have I have a good example. I have a good example. Um, before all this stuff happened, uh, people like Hebei Pangzai were just having fun drinking with their friends, and now uh, he is getting paid to make videos and merchandise for it. Well, good for him though. <laughs> <laughs> um. So also like the thing earlier about like because uh, there's just if they always say so many things that's another one of the things besides straw men they just throw out like a hundred things and hope one of them mm-hmm. sticks and they also make it really hard to re- like reply to them because they say like a hundred things so like they're very loosely connected to each other what sorry the spread in debate that's the, <laughs> in the in the like formal debate you just you say as many as many uh, you know make as many statements as you can so the opposition can't. Why? Oh yeah, I'm I'm sort of familiar with that tactic, but uh... <laughs> 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 but uh, the, the other thing though is this like it's so uh, before this like with all this is that not only do they do the straw men, not only do they not read it, it's just like in the case of degrowth and environmental things, it's like not only do they set up a straw man, but they manage to set one up that is exactly wrong. Do you know what I mean? So it's like mm-hmm. uh, like. All these, all the claims, all the stuff about the poverty and the growth and the prosperity and the shrinking—it's just like they don't like. Not only do they caricature the opposition, but the caricature they have is not like of the degrowth. It's like of themselves. It's very weird. Mm-hmm. And it's like so. This I always, I, I, always, I really like your piece. I always that's why I always share it with people. The, it's not ecofascism. It's liberalism piece. Because I share that with everybody. That's great because it gets to this like central point, which is that like what everybody calls ecofascism, it's just the dominant ideology is like like underbelly. It's just like uh, I did a th- the logical conclusion of what reality necessitates according to their ideology. Yes, and they've been that way for two hundred years. And it's like I I did a thread once where I compared. I took the Bloomberg and I took the Economist, and I went through their reporting on climate and ecology stuff and a few other topics. And I noticed this. So it would be like, okay, when scientists would come out and make a climate uh, prediction, they'll say, a thousand climate uh, climate scientists are calling for population reduction. You'll go, read the pe- you'll go read the piece, and they don't actually call for that. In fact, in one of the times they t- had that title, there were seven sections, 
in the paper, only one of them was population. You click the population section, it says, due to like horrible abuses of population control in the past, it is like, this is like, they basically say, we don't. <laughs> like, we support contraception and reproductive justice and equity, but like, we support social justice too. So it's what it's just so funny. They just baldly misrepresented it. But, um, and everybody's like, wow, look, scientists are eco fascist. But then you go look at other things. And then so when someone comes out and says, okay, fine. So it's not that it's probably the economy, it's production. We need to, we need to degrow throughput, all this other stuff. Then Bloomberg and the economists both will put out an article that'll be like, they mentioned de uh, like reducing throughput in production, but what about overpopulation? So when scientists like critique, Climate change. They they say, oh, look at these scientists who want to kill your babies and forcibly reduce the population. And then when scientists say we need to reduce production and just fix the uh, uh, to, to save like the environment or whatever, then they say, oh, but what about overpopulation? And I noticed Bloomberg and the Economist both reliably do this. It's like they sometimes in the same issue. So they'll they'll literally they'll literally they'll literally have one article portraying uh, scientists as these like rabid fascists who want to kill all your babies and another one being like oh the degrowth is wrong what about china and overpopulation and they always play this double game and it's like i really wish people i really want people to like get this like that like it's not the it's not ecofascism liberalism point and further that just like they are going to say whatever they can to prevent substantive ecological action which means that they're both at the sometimes at the same time are both going to be criticizing scientists for apparently calling for a reduction of a population and then in another article calling for a reduction like call for population control they'll do it at the same time so it's just like uh it's i see i sort of like um all of i also think like part of the reason that they never quote anyone or like use the actual arguments of degrowthers is just because if they did that then people would be like oh that actually makes sense I do think, like, yeah. Oh yeah, we're destroying the environment because we're like extracting too many resources and dumping too many wastes everywhere, and we need to reduce that. Yeah, sure, okay. <laughs> well, and and if like they've if they quoted the degrowthers, they would come to the point that degrowthers say over and over and over, which is that it's about not using like GDP as a metric at more anymore at all. Right. Mm -hmm. It's it's so it's like so like that like. What is that snarky thing that what Noah Smith or someone else said on Twitter where they were like, well, if you're not actually about degrowing the economy, then why call it degrowth or something? They did the same thing with the um, defunding the police and abolishing the police thing. Yeah. That's like their new thing. Yeah. Well, I think, I mean, this is all, I, I feel like a great uh, little segue to the Noah Smith article, which is, is I think, in a, an example of pure propaganda. And I think that's something that as as people who are advocating for degrowth, I think need to constantly be uh, focused on is this project that the growthists are doing to try to position degrowth as an ideology or as, as a part of an ideological project when, uh, you know, like you're saying, the opposite is true. This is this is something that that growthists like Noah Smith are doing. This is, you know, his He's a Bloomberg columnist. His whole job is to to create propaganda for, uh, you know, for for neoliberal, whatever the neoliberal project. And you know, I, I I've seen a lot of these these growthists trying to position themselves as you know they're just the rational arbiters of 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 science and of of reason and and everything. While 
trying to position degrowthers as as the ideological ones. And it's just it's a complete sort of you know projection. They're they're you know accusing degrowthers of this thing that they're doing. And I think right now this is the 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 position that that we need to be in is saying degrowth is just this is just the reasonable response to the problems that we have right now this isn't you know rooted in a in an ideology or, or rooted in a, a, a you know specific uh sort of political program this is just what needs to happen and and the growthists who are are trying to position it as as propaganda or as ideology are actually the ones who are doing you know the construction of propaganda and ideology and i i think you know uh noah's column about degrowth is a is a perfect illustration of that yeah, this last sentence in the intro paragraph is like the perfect encapsulation of like that and a, and a lot of other stuff that we've mentioned so far. He says, degrowth might even be a way for citizens of wealthy, declining nations to maintain their pride as hungrier up-and-coming societies catch up, since it recasts economic slowdown as virtue. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's a, again, I think like, well, in the other article, they managed to skirt dangerously close to lying without actually lying but in the noah smith one he does just kind of lie yeah like over and over it's uh bizarre even but yeah i don't know i mean it's so funny because he like this is right after he cites that john cassidy article uh where you know non-degrowth economists like lawrence summers and uh Volrath or whatever we're like yeah uh economic slowdown is good actually right that's what the neoclassicals are saying yeah <laughs> and like i think the a way for citizens of wealthy declining nations to maintain their pride thing is is just complete projection i don't think any degrowthers are like people who love america and want it to be like the exceptionally good country in the world I don't, that doesn't seem like a th- a type of person to me. <laughs> uh, well, yeah. I think something about degrowth, I think this is important. I think because if, because like, for example, if we, if we do actually want to make, because every idea movement, everything has some, you know, things that can be criticized. Right. So if we want to actually talk about those things, then we need to actually understand what it is. And we can't just like allow these people to lie about it. And so mm-hmm. what people don't really understand about degrowth, I think actually is that it's very flexible and it like, it does, it contains a liberal reformist wing that thinks it's basically possible within capitalism and through the state, through social democracy to get to this outcome. And then it has the radical wing that's the tear it all down type. So, I mean, it's just like, it's a very broad spectrum because it just, it's about this. It's like, I mean, it's like, you know, when people say Antifa is not an organization, it's an ideology, right? And it contains everybody from liberals to communists. So it's like, uh, degrowth is very similar because the two fundamental claims that we need to like stop using GDP and other reified uh, economic market categories for governing our lives, and as our central policy uh, metric and as our central target and everything. That's first claim, and the second claim that we need to degrow throughput, waste, impact, uh, and production. Uh, uh, and then third claim that we need to equally distribute the results of that production so that we have you know better living standards for everybody. Those three claims uh, allow you to be held, hold a wide variety of other things. Like that's consistent with social democracy, with anarchism, with Marxism. So it's just like uh, that's the other thing is that these the, these people like the Smiths and those they rely on 
portraying degrowth as just like a unified, singular, monolithic, like, as you're saying, ideology and almost they, they portrayed in almost conspiratorial terms. They love to make it look like it's like the elite ideology that everybody like that. It's like the elites believe that. And well, you know, the workers believe in uh, neoliberalism is kind of <laughs> like their argument. And it's like yeah. bizarre. I don't know. Anyway. Yeah, totally. Yeah. I think that's a great point. Um, and I, I, I mean, I think there, there also is some value in trying to, pin down a little, a little bit more of a, of an, of an ideological or political program, um, among, you know, degrowthers. Uh, I wrote another piece, I, I think it was titled, uh, we need a fair way to end economic growth. Just basically arguing that if, when you kind of strip down degrowth ideas to, to a very basic, just, you know, reducing throughput, abandoning GDP, uh, getting rid of that, that third thing you said about, uh, you know, equitably redistributing, um, you can imagine really, you know, right-wing authoritarian degrowth scenarios where mm. austerity increases and uh, and where you know it's imposed violently and non-democratically. And um, I, you know, so I think there is there is value to trying to monopolize the idea uh, and it, and it, you know imbue it with these these values of egalitarianism and and you know uh, and democracy and and whatever. But uh, so there, I think there is value to that. But I think this is. Yeah, this is a really important point that that you know if we're not defining it, then Noah is defining it. You know, Matt Iglesias is defining it, and um, and the New Yorker is defining it. And I think that's that's you know that's not that's not where we want to be. Um, and what I, I think also an important sort of uh, you know this your your point about the you know the New Yorker is almost lying and Noah is lying. I think that's kind of revealing this this different this this sort of like. Uh, you have these different these different roles when you're when you're you know when you're producing propaganda you have different people playing different roles good cop bad cop whatever um, I think people like Noah who are who are just very clearly propagandists I think that's their role is to just you know create the straw men do the uh, you know do the whole you know line misrepresenting um, and then the you know New Yorker can say we're we're in between everybody we're we're just we're we're the you know impartial impartial observers here uh, and but I think they you know that's a that's an equally important role in that in in sort of maintaining that uh, that that growthist ideology um, yeah I I think let's let's dig into this article a little bit but I think I just was that's I think that's really actually a good assessment and then and then good assessment the good cop bad cop thing and then the New Yorker and then. What if there's this other one, like another role they kind of have, which is like right wingers has sort of are the masters at this, but like look at one person from the other side to argue its point, but that person will be a really bad arguer. And then they'll just yeah, constantly, totally. they'll just Paul, yeah. Paul Begala, Tucker Carlson. It's the, the, the jobber. Totally. Yeah, That's yeah. That's the role, the yeah. jobber. It's called the jobber. You're totally right. Yeah, in, in wrestling, a jobber is someone who oh, is. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's yeah, brownie, someone who's yeah. paid to lose to make the the face look good. That's a great point. Or or so, or they'll. Yeah, I, I'm just I'm working on a, a, a review of Schellenberger's new book with with Nathan Robinson, and it's it's all about this sort of art of propaganda and and how he's you know he's positioning himself as an environmentalist. He's saying, "Hey, I'm on your team," and mm-hmm. and I still think you know climate change is not a problem. 
Uh, I agree with 80% of uh, what you do. Yeah, exactly. Uh, they love that. <laughs> I mean, so many, like, the, what's his name? There's that statistician that pioneered that game. Uh, what's his name? Um, uh, uh, he's from Scandinavian country. Uh, Lomborg? Yes. Uh, yeah. Bjorn. Yeah, 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 we're gonna review his new book too. It's oh, the same what, oh, that's, book. It's, that's it's what you're the talking. Same. I see. I see. I see. I see. Yeah. Okay. It's, I misheard it the first time. Yeah. No, no. Uh, it's Schellenberger's Apocalypse Never and Lomborg's whatever. I don't know what oh. his new one is, but it's like it's basically the same book that they both wrote <laughs> and happened to publish at the same time. Uh, <laughs> so, like, you know, getting back to the conspiratorial stuff, I, it's it's it really. I mean, conspiracies are real and they happen, you know. And I feel like. There is there is a real you know there is a real kind of coordination that happens um, when you can see these these two books. I think they're both big five publishers. At least Schellenberger's is. I don't know about Lomborg. Um, and they're saying the same stuff. They're doing the same little you know little uh, propaganda game. Um, it's 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 definitely you know uh, I, I don't think it's unreasonable to say that there's there's some kind of you know there's coordination happening or the, or there's at least, you know, these two uh, publishers see uh, a real place to uh, place in the market to sell this this idea of of sort of this environmentalist in, well, in, is, in quotes. You know, Lomberg is broadly institutionally supported. I mean, that's not even like we don't even have to. We can, it's like you just go to his website and, and like as uh, you know, as you were saying earlier, the other thing we we're talking about, like uh, like the the conference for green growth or whatever, and it was just everybody yeah. funding it. You yeah. go to Lomberg's thing. He's like he gets he's funded every single freaking like awful organization like funds him. All the like I'm pretty sure he gets uh uh through through like laundered beans. I'm pretty sure he gets oil money though. I'm not sure, and I don't want to get a libel case, so don't quote me on that. <laughs> but uh, but uh, it's like so with him like I don't like it's like for some for some of these people their institutional support and broad based connections and like like money and their co coordination with these other groups. It's like a matter of public record. It's like very funny. It's just like, mm -hmm. like we don't need to dig into the, we don't need to like search for, uh, it doesn't even have to be like they paid him to do blah, blah, blah. It was like, he does blah, blah, blah already. And they, but they do are like, him. Oh, that's, that's good stuff. Let's pay you. Yeah, but they do pay him. That's the that. thing. And he, yeah. it's like, so it's such an, it's like somewhere between a grift and, uh, and, uh, yeah. And, a propaganda they probably actually or, believe someone yeah i think he genuinely believes maybe yeah um so yeah. speaking of propaganda though i would i would be remiss if i didn't say the the very first sentence of this no smith article because i thought it was pretty funny which is one of the more pernicious ideas now coming into vogue is that society should voluntarily halt their economic growth i just thought that was so funny that it's like not only a pernicious idea but it's coming into vogue as if like <laughs> degrowth is a popular position that anyone knows about <laughs> Uh, this is they always do that yeah. like like what is like you know the like, i mean the one of the big things that like the you know those twitter e-celeb types do like you know we could this whole cavalcade of random personalities like the amy Teresa's or whatever of the world that's one of their favorite tactics is to portray other left-wing ideologies and ideas as being like the ones that the elite believe they, this is like one of their favorite yeah. things mm -hmm. yeah. they, they love it they'd be like oh the neoliberals you support degrowth it's just like <laughs> the neoliberal professional class degrowthers who run our society it's like what <laughs> what, what, what where <laughs> yeah totally 
so we already talked about the last sentence of that paragraph. Um, so let's keep going. Um, so he says, uh, although degrowth does contain a few nuggets of insight, very generous of him, Ooh, it's based on a number of misconceptions about what economic growth is and why it's desirable. <laughs> What's hilarious about that is that you read this once and you, you it's very clear that he doesn't also know what economic growth is it's true no <laughs> well that's what I, you know the twitter spat who's that random social democrat on twitter like james medlock or whatever who's retweeting yeah james medlock yep he isn't he an economist um, i don't know or is he just a pundit I, think, I thought he was a lawyer oh okay okay because if he, i might be wrong i i only started noticing him like a couple weeks ago i was like who the fuck is this guy i keep seeing him constantly because if he's an economist his comments on gdp would be literally unforgivable <laughs> do you know what i mean like it's he might he might even be in finance i'm not sure i i didn't think he was an economist though because uh, i would have yeah made fun of him way more if he were uh so okay maybe he's just a lawyer that's still funny but uh I'm, I'm looking at his at his twitter bio and i don't see a i don't see a uh, profession in here it's weird yeah yeah he has like extremely online guy jokes <laughs> for his bio um all right anyway let's let's keep going um so he says that uh politicians care about growth for a different reason than most people do so most people associate it with raising living standards um and he says that is true for developing countries which we already talked about why that's not really true um, but for politicians, growth is good because it's correlated with low unemployment. Wait, also, which is so funny to you because, like, that's, uh, like, <laughs> not true. Like, output is correlated with employment uh, and, like, demand and all this other stuff. But over the long run, growth is correlated with shedding employment. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's, it's like... The relationship between growth and um, empl- unemployment, employment in the in the first instance where they're rising together, is the other way around. It's because the labor inputs are rising that growth rises. Yeah, yeah. Just a bit briefly, like he's saying, politicians care about it because of employment, which might be true. But as the New Yorker article. Article says it's the labor input growth which drives the growth, not the other way around. And GDP growth over the long run reduces employment. And I mean, as I was saying, that's like the famous, I mean, Marxian contradiction between accumulation and value is that as uh, accumulation rises, labor is shed. And then that becomes contradictory both for the production of in the economy and for the realization of it. So I was saying it's kind of inexcusable for leftists. When Noah Smith, who's not a Marxist, says this nonsense, it makes sense. But like, when leftists parrot this kind of thing, uh, it's hilarious. It's unforgivable because it's just like, yeah. And so the fact is that maybe it's, maybe it is true that's why politicians care about it, but it's a reversing reality, right? It's the labor growth that drives the growth, not the way or other way around. Right. Yeah. Uh, so we were, we were talking about those graphs uh, that show that we're actually using fewer resources now, um, which are – you know, they just have like no context at all. I did notice um, there is a caption that kind of pasted weird in my document, which is that it, the metals uh, plus nitrogen graph is a like a growth rate because it's an it's an index. So uh, it is like a percentage uh, change from the previous period. Um, so like 
if this were a cumulative graph, it would still be going up. Um, oh, it's just that, yeah. yeah, the rate has like declined very slightly in the last, uh, oh, from not even the last couple of years because it ends at 2014. Uh, but from like 2008 to 2015, there, there's a uh, sub 100 rate for some of the materials. But and other than that, because of the, because of the recession, like. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and what uh, what is it? So like uh like so there's so many things with this, right? It's like first of all, relative decoupling, as they call it, is very much overstated, and so much of it is just like the offshoring of production. That's the first point. The second point is that even if you have relative decoupling, as they call it, you don't necessarily have absolute decoupling because of things like the Jevons effect and because of growth. And then finally, even if you have absolute decoupling, you still don't necessarily have a fall in impact because of the past impacts that already happened. So like each step, it's like further from the truth. Like they're, they, they, like, even if you have absolute decoupling, you still have the like. The CO2 in the atmosphere is not going to go away. We're still going to have warming. And even if we have uh, relative decoupling, we don't even necessarily have absolute decoupling. And then we don't necessarily even have relative decoupling. So it's just like each step takes us further from reality, which is like the whatever. And for the people that like decoupling is the idea that um, growth and output become no longer correlated with or are relying on resource impacts, resource use, whatever. And the argument goes that as economies become more efficient, they use fewer materials. So, and energy and carbon, and that's called relative decoupling. Um, but, yeah, he has a chart that he tries to show it with here, which is another index with like no explanation. And it's uh, five countries, uh, which all have famously like sent away their manufacturing. <laughs> so the US, Sweden, Germany, France, UK. And the chart also ends in a year that famously had a leveling off of emissions. Um, which I thought was funny. Um, so it's supposed to be carbon emissions from total consumption, including imports. Um, again, I went on the USGS site. Oh, sorry. Oh, this one was our world and data. I went on both of these sites and looked for anything like that. And, uh, there was no statistic that was anything like carbon emissions from total consumption, including imports. So I have no fucking idea where he got it from. It could just be completely made up. <laughs> it is. Um, uh, it also, uh, one thing I noticed is, uh, it says carbon emissions from total consumption, which probably means that it's separating it from production. So you're like ignoring half of the emissions picture as well as the last four years. I think he's doing the dishonest kind of thing of lumping all production to consumption. That's what it seems like. Yeah. In a number of countries... In a number of rich countries, growth has become decoupled from carbon emissions. So that's what we were just talking about. And he says, this is happening for several reasons. So he just like, in the chart, it says, has the decoupling started? As if it's like not sure. And then he just proceeds as if it's true. Um, <laughs> consumer demands are shifting from physical goods to services. They love this one, don't they? Um, including online ones. Which, by the way, I, uh, I remember seeing the study a couple years ago that... Um, if you are using an online service, like people seem to think that like online services have no like uh, ecological okay. impacts, but uh, you can actually take uh, data and print it out on paper 
and drive in an individual car up to 80 miles um, and you will use fewer resources to do that than to use uh, like email. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, there was a there was a thing about uh, like one Bitcoin transaction is equal to powering a house for a year. The electricity required for a single Bitcoin train could power a house for a year. Uh, 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 sorry, 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 a whole month. Uh, oh, but okay. Still, that's, that's like that's it'll get crazy... to a year soon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absurd. yeah. I mean, that's that's still absurd. Well, what is it? Iceland, uh, uh, Bitcoin mining in Iceland now uses more electricity than the rest of the country. Something like that, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. So that same. Um, yeah. um, so he says uh, innovation allows more efficient resource use. Um, which I commented, if he hadn't already blocked me, I would simply reply to every one of his tweets with the Jevons Paradox Wikipedia article until he blocked me. <laughs> so if you're listening, feel free to do that. <laughs> uh, I think he blocked me too, so. <laughs> I'm, still, um, I'm still good, I think. I'm still in the, in the clear, so I can, I can try that. I had, a, nice. I had a weird interaction with Noah. Uh, when I posted this thing on, on Twitter that was like, why do all these these like big sort of pundit accounts have black and white photos as, uh, of like, you know, literary figures or whatever, uh, and, and put his on there. I think it was like him and Matt Iglesias and a couple of other people. He yeah, has like his Yates. profile picture. I, I think he has Yates. Oh, okay. Um, and, and he replied, they all replied. <laughs> I was <like laughs> really insecure about their profile pics. Um, oh, you're but, right. Yeah, and it was just it. It was an innocuous, you know, kind of question, but uh, it was a it was a weird interaction. But he's so I think I can still access. Wait, so what's Noah. the reason? Why do they? He this? so he he replied. He had a, it was like it was <laughs> it was an inside <laughs> joke that he had. I guess I the other ones I can't remember. This one of them had like Humphrey Bogart. Uh, they, they all had their own little reasons, but it was a. It, a lot of them had it, so I was I was curious. What what was? Did you include Brainig on that? Because doesn't he have like FDR or something? Oh, as a he had pick? Rawls. I think he had oh, John Rawls. Rawls. Okay. Yeah, and I think I did actually. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, I, I believe I did. Um, um, anyway, 